Embody respectfully acknowledges the traditional owners of the lands and waters of Australia and pays respects to elders past and present. Welcome to Mission Unplugged, genuine conversations about Christian faith in action with young innovators locally, nationally, and globally. I'm Emily. I'm Elise. And I'm Mitch. Today, we are hearing from Mitch as he sat down and spoke to David Home of Sharing Hope. David is the Programs Coordinator for Sharing Hope, an NGO that works with refugees and displaced communities along the Thai-Burma border, and he's also the Young Adults Coordinator at TLC Church in Melbourne. One of my favourite parts of this chat um, when you sat down with David, Mitch, was um, the way he was talking about being involved in mission where you are and not just always thinking about the next big thing and the people overseas. And Likewise, I was just really encouraged and, and honestly a bit challenged um, when David talks about how it's really important to know the people that you are working with and advocating for. So that they're not just abstract concepts, they're real people with real lived experiences that inform how you talk about, how you talk with um, and how you involve people in mission and advocacy and justice together. So really excited to share this interview with you. Let's get into it. We want to do good. We want to do the right thing by our faith, by who we are as people. But often it's very, very hard to actually take that extra step and go, I also want to engage. Yet it's only through engaging do we actually really begin to know the people that we purport to support. G'day Dave, welcome to Mission Unplugged. Thank you very much for having me, you're exciting. It's awesome to have you on the podcast. Um, so to start us off, tell us a bit about yourself. Tell us uh, you know, a bit about your faith journey and the work that you do. Yeah, sure. So um, I, uh, I currently am working in uh, two roles, one role which we'll be going into a bit more later on, but my the first role is I work a couple of days a week at my local church in Bayswater and I do um, a lot of the coordinating with the young adults, and I also um, work with um, organising events and uh, weddings, that kind of stuff that, that happens naturally. We haven't been doing too many of those lately, but um, uh, yeah, no, that's typically what my what my role is. Um, I come from a pretty pretty standard Aussie background. Uh, both grew up in the church, and uh, uh, yeah, so nothing nothing too extreme in that. But um, lived in lived in Heathmont, spent a bit of time in Dandenong, and now I'm in one Turner. So pretty pretty boring, really, as far as uh, my old background is. Pretty standard. <laughs> Good old uh, eastern suburbs of Melbourne boy. That's right. I mean, I could go into the three years I spent in a submarine, but that's just boring stuff anyway. <laughs> no, we'll yeah. just we'll gloss over that. That's right. Listeners yeah. don't need to hear about that. And my brief stint at NASA. Yeah, no, none of that. <laughs> so... One of the things I always love um, asking people, it's probably one of my favorite parts about doing this podcast, getting to ask this question. What does the idea of mission mean to you, Dave? Yeah, it's one of those funny questions where when I when I saw it and I thought I'd do a, you know, jot down a few notes, um, 
you know, first question, the, the thought I, I first got was, oh, that's a pretty easy one to start with. So I got my pen and I went to write <laughs> down and I'm kind of, actually, hang on, that is a bit complicated. And I had to put it down again <laughs> and give it a think. Um, it's tricky because I think a lot of the time we can, we can look at the word mission and we can tie it up with vocation um, or tie it up with a, a set activity. You know, things like the first thing that I think of probably because I've done it for a few years, but things like beach mission. Um, where, you know, it's a very, very set activity. Um, and I think that oftentimes mission can be done in that platform. But I think uh, what it is, at least personally, at a fundamental level, it sort of means just simply to do, to live um, in, a, in a very specific way. Um, if we take the, I guess, the idea or the premise that if we're, if we're Christians, if we're called to be representatives of, of the kingdom of God, if you look at what the kingdom of God is, it's inherently a relational kingdom. So therefore, uh, anything that is missional is an example of positive relationship. So if we are being positive in our relationship, if we're being deliberate in that sense, then that is ultimately what mission is. And that can take many different forms. Yeah. Yeah, cool. The relational mission of God. That's cool. So. What do you consider to be your first experience of participating in that kind of relationship? So, as I alluded to earlier, apart from my time in the submarine and with NASA, I um, had a very, uh, very standard upbringing, um, middle class, uh, Australian background. Um, yeah, nothing, nothing unusual. And although my parents had both been involved in uh, fairly radical stuff, working with youth. Um, when I was, you know, a baby and, and before then, um, not, nothing, nothing extreme during my my years growing up, and so I had a very sheltered life. And it wasn't until I was eighteen when my mother moved down to Dandenong, and I went with her. Uh, and Mum joined an organisation called Urban Neighbours of Hope, or you know, and you might have had one of those guys on your program before, or you might in 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 the short term future. Um, an incredible organisation. Essentially, they're, they're called to live in community. Uh, they, they do some pretty extreme things. They take vows of poverty. They're, they're only allowed to spend a certain number of hours a week outside of their local community. So what it is, they essentially they dedicate their entire lives to working with people within a very small, very specific local context. And that's what they do. They share God's love with a lot of people that the world doesn't really have time for. So for me, that was a very, uh, um, you know, it felt like I was diving diving in. Although my mum was quite good at, you know, she, she moved to Denmark to do this work, but also she knew that the home, our house, was my home as well. And so mum tried to separate as much as she could her missional work with her living at home. Um, so I, I, I didn't see a lot of what mum did and what the other, you know, workers did, but every now and then, you know, you can't avoid it. And um, if, um, you know, one, one example that that really stuck with me was uh, I was studying in the city and I was working in the city as well. So I wasn't often home either, but I think I might have wagged school one day and I was coming home and just remember the sun being up and mum wasn't back home from work yet. And I was walking down our driveway and all of a sudden I realised there was someone in our backyard and I thought, okay. Uh, so I walk around the back and, and it was a, a local person that um, people at Urban Neighbours of Hope 
know well, and he, he would come over to wash mum's car um, and would that was just what, what I think he really got a lot of joy in doing was in, in helping other people by washing cars. That was the thing that he knew how to do. And so he would often be around washing mum's car. And, yeah, I was either 18 or 19 and I'd, I'd never really had to deal with someone who had significant disabilities like this person had or even really talk to people that I didn't really want to talk to. Um, and so the very I remember standing in the backyard speaking to this person and I just, it just went through my head of, Dave, okay, this is, this is what you're going to be doing until, until mum comes home. You're going to be chatting. And he was, uh, violence is the wrong word. He's not a violent person, but his actions are quite violent. Like he'll uh, move. Intensity. Yeah, yeah, very intense. So he'll, you know, he'll focus very intently on one thing one second and then he'll, he'll mind will completely shift to something else. And so, you know, you can't quite relax in the, in the conversation. Yeah, you're constantly working to just keep, up just with the conversation. To keep yeah. up with him, yeah. And so that was sort of the experience of kind of breaking away this very sheltered middle-class, you know, um, Heathmont vibe um, where I remember primary school in Heathmont, there was there was really no one that had a, an, other than a very, very typical Aussie background. Um, or if there was, we didn't know about it. Um, and then high school, there was, a, there was, more, there was more divergence there and, and different backgrounds and communities, but not a lot more. And so I was very sheltered in that regard. And, and the idea of mission was a concept that, you know, it was always something that other people did. And all of a sudden my mum was living it and she was engaging with people like, like this particular person. And, but, you know, workers do amazing things. They work with them. They do a lot of work with refugees and asylum seekers. They do a lot of work with people exiting the justice system. Uh, and just a lot of people in general in the community, um, people coming out of the sex industry, people fleeing domestic violence, like these are the people that, that Urban Neighbours of Hope work really, really well with. Um, and so I, I saw a little glimpse of that. Um, and to be honest with you, I hated it. I thought, I thought, I don't want to do this. It was a very, very straightforward response um, from me. It was, no, this is not the life I want to live. I quite like being, it's very confronting. And but often, um, um, you know, if we try and think of, of serving the kingdom of God is going to be this thing that, that is always easy and relaxing, then, you know, we're not really paying attention to the ministry of Jesus. Um, and so that was that was the beginnings of a learning process for me of, of trying to work out actually, you know, we're called to serve. We're called to, to go to the margins. And um, and that's different for everyone, but that was a real wake-up call for me when I was just entering my adulthood. And how has that informed how your your theological imagination, how your missional understanding has evolved over the years and how has that informed the work that you you do now with the church, with sharing hope, and, mm. you know, living life? I think you can't, you can't, I mean, there's there's different stages to being a Christian perhaps, like, you know, and, and you know, it's very, very difficult to try to, you know, categorize levels of Christianity. I'm not going to fall into that. Um, that's, uh, Absolutely. I, in my own experience, I think, uh, you know, as I said earlier, I've been, a, I grew up in the church when I think I was, you know, 12 or 13 when I decided I wanted to, you know, be a Christian in my own right. But it wasn't until I was 19 or 20 where I actually really understood um uh, God's grace in my life 
And I remember um, I'd been chatting to one of the elders at my church and he just explained the concept of, of grace and forgiveness and to me in such a way that it just clicked for the first time. And I remember, I remember leaving, leaving that, that meeting and I was just thinking, you know, God is just incredible. He's just, you know, there's no better possible better way to live than live for a God um, who loves so unconditionally. And I, I was, it was a beautiful, warm spring day, and I remember I skipped to my car, um, and I, I, I said, I said as I was driving home, I, I said, God, I'm yours. Like if that's, if this is the deal, then I, I, I'm yours. And uh, you know, I'll definitely take this verse out of context. Um, you know, it talks about you know, uh, the faith is the size of, of mustard seed. Um, um, oh, actually, no, that's the wrong verse. There's a, there's a few good ones. Uh, talking about um, you know uh, faith moving mountains, and uh, uh, the I remember thinking um, you know I, I don't think that you know my my faith can literally make a mountain move, but I I was prepared fully to get the shovel and start digging, you know, and and, and I think that's that's a cool metaphor for that is that you know faith compels us like there's a big mountain and we've got to move it great well I'll I'll, I'll start digging. I'll, I'll get my shovel and then other Christians get their shovels. And I think that's a cool little, I don't know how the theology of that sounds, but it's, it's good permission. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. And, but then the other, other side of it was that I, I learned very quickly looking at, at the mum's context with Urban Neighbours of Hope, that there were some things that I was just not cut out to do. And I do not have the patience or, or that, or that wonderful expressive love for me to work with, with people say that have severe, severe disability or who are challenging for, for whatever reason, um, I'm, not, I'm not a, you know, I, I don't work at the grassroots really well. Um, and so that was kind of a challenging thing. But um, I guess my first expression of doing mission myself was really shaped my mission outlook in general. I, I lost my job in the city and one of the uni workers that was living with mum and I suggested that I, I um, work in a play centre they were looking for a weekend manager to kind of just make sure the play centre would run well. And, of course, it did not appeal to me at all. I, you know, it's just not my forte. But um, I was really intrigued by, by the organisation itself because they, they were run by Christian missionaries whose job was to work with uh, children um, suffering um, from trauma and families suffering from grief and trauma. Um, and so the whole idea of the play centre was that they would work um you know, the play centre would run as a play centre, but their their clients would come and the, the kids could play and, and they'd be able to sit and chat with, with these people. And they knew them. I had no idea who their clients were. Our staff didn't know. Um, but that was their mission. That was their ministry. And I, I really quickly realised that I had a part to play. And my skills, like, you know, they talk about that, you know, gifts of the spirit. And <laughs> I think my gift of the spirit is, you know, uh, uh, middle management and administration. <laughs> you know, some, yeah, I think I remember that verse in. Uh, yeah, in exactly Paul's right. Yeah. Exactly right. Paul was big on that. No, you know, some people can raise others from the dead, and no, I'm stuck with admin. But you yeah. know, you, you play the hand you dealt. But the, right. um, I, I was I was actually good at that job, and I, and I was realized I, I could manage a setting, and I could manage employees, and and because I really valued what my bosses were doing. I was more than willing to play my part to make sure that that would work. And then you realise that there's other things that you can do within that. So 
you know, I can make sure the play center goes, but also here are, here are young guys and girls that were going to the, you know, they were joining the work, workforce for the first time. And this is in a rough part of, part of Melbourne. And so a lot of them didn't have amazing backgrounds. A lot of them had never met a Christian before. Um, and a lot of them didn't even know our bosses were Christian. Um, and so here was a chance for me to actually show them, okay, I, I can be a good role model to them and I can teach them good life skills. And, and so I quickly discovered there were other things I could do um, in that. And, and so that was kind of my first actual example of, of living mission, of, of taking my workplace, my context, and saying, actually, how can I use this to further the kingdom of God? And it was very easy because my bosses were doing that. Um, and I was just playing the part that, that I had at that time. And, and that, that's really shaped my missional outlook is I don't see myself as a, as a ground player. You know, I, I, you know, for example, one of the things that we do at, at uh, my church is uh, we're part of the Winter Shelter Program where we, we did COVID. It was crazy and we did a lot of different things. But, um, in fact, I think you had um, someone speak about Winter Shelter, didn't you, um, from Urban Life? Um, yes, yes, Scott McGeehan. Scott McGeehan, yeah. And his so, crew are part of that. Yeah, yeah they're, they're part of that, that whole yeah. Winter Shelter. Scott does a lot of work with Winter Shelter. Do you want to give a quick outline of what Winter Shelter is and does? So it's, it was a bit different last year with COVID, but um, in the previous few years it was uh, basically over winter. Um, one of the um, – typically when it comes to homelessness, women and children are taken care of first and totally as it should be. Um, but men often um, are the ones that are left sleeping out. And so we've, um, um, in my context in Bayswater and in other parts of, of these regions, um, it's very visible. We had people sleeping on, on our church, you know, in our, in our church. And so for us, we really readily saw the need, but we didn't quite know how we could approach it. And so Winter Shelter, basically every night over winter, um, up to a dozen uh, homeless men are... Uh, housed. We pick them up from a, a set place. Um, we take them to different churches. So my church had one night a week, another church has another night a week, and it goes on like that. Urban life was, was Sunday nights, I think. Um, and so they've given good food, good company, and just a place to sleep. Now, for, for these guys, that's transformative. A lot of these guys, you know, homelessness in Australia um, is obviously extremely rough, but for a lot of these guys, they actually just need the space to be able to think for a while 100%. without having to worry about where they're going to sleep, where they're going to eat, whether they're going to have to, you know, defend themselves. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. The amount of resources, me mental and emotional resources it takes to just live Survive. each day on yeah. the streets. Yeah. It yeah. just, it precludes anything else. And so yeah. we've seen a lot of these guys, um, some of the people that we just told to are some of the strongest people I've ever met. Um, one person in particular um, had, a, had a very, very, severe um, struggle with alcohol um, and he was going through the AA program. Unbelievable strength. Not only is he, is he struggling with his housing situation and all, all of the factors that come with that and he didn't have the best company in the world in people that were, you know, people that were more than willing to try and bring him down. But his strength, you know, there, there were moments when, when he was there when, you know, he was breaking down and, I, and I'm watching him and I'm thinking, you know, today's the day that he'll, he'll lapse or he'll relapse. And, you know, today's the, he was doing so well. He'd gone so long without touching a drop and and um, he had some very funny ways of dealing with it. You know, every now and then he might just say, no, no, bugger off. 
and you know, and just, and we're like, <laughs> yeah. what, what, what are you talking about? It's like, oh, sorry, sorry, just talking to the talking to the voice in my head, and it's like, okay, man, you do what you need to do. That's um, exactly right. But it worked for him, and but you know, there was this one particular moment when I thought that he was going to the, today was going to be the day that that he would he would give in. Yeah. And there's not much that you can do in that situation apart from pray, but he didn't, and he got the strength back, and he. Some of them, it's incredibly strong people I've met, and a lot of them have been able to get back into work, get back into housing. And so, winter shelter is is a very temporary thing. It's not a permanent solution to these problems, but it can, for for select number of men, it can give them the just the space that they need to to begin to to work out their next stage in life. And so, for my role with that is is once again that middle management thing. I in 2019, I just coordinated that program for my church. Um, and I was able to get the volunteers, and a lot of these guys were much, much, much better at, at the talking than I was. Although I'm, I'm probably getting better at that as I get to know the guys. Some of some people just have a really good way of just connecting. I'm not. Some one of people, people just have the gift of the gab. Yeah, exactly right. And it's in yeah. it's 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 the body of Christ, isn't it? So sometimes it's exactly you know, right. It's exactly right. And so uh, uh, God's the head, isn't he? I was about to say maybe I'm the head. That I, you know, I. <laughs> so well, I've got to be careful here. Um, but you know. I, I'm good the at the rational planning. Yeah, I'm thinking good, I'm through good at the planning of the body and, yeah. and coordinating. But I'm definitely yeah. not good at other things. And so for me, it's that that middle management. I can I can listen to my you know I can listen to the coordinators of the overall program, um, who Scott's one of, and Gitta Clayton's another credible workers. I can learn from them and I can do my bit. Uh, and that's very very much been my I guess the missional experiences I've been having is lots of times just doing my bit. Which is very rarely the, the the front line, but it's often the background and making sure that people that that um, are at the front lines know they have the support and know who they yeah. contact if they need anything. Yeah, yeah, no, mate. I look, I resonate with that a lot, um, both in you know knowing you and how you operate, but also like yeah that that lesson of the the body of Christ is really really important. I I know I've you know. I've I've lived and worked in this this missional kind of um, industry for for so long. You know, you go to conferences and you see people get up and they speak about all the amazing things that they've been mm. a part of accomplishing. You know, with with God's help and with the blessing of, <laughs> of people and everything. But you know, and you sit there and go, "Oh, I'd love I'd love to do that stuff," but just not everyone is equipped to do that. I'm not equipped to do that. I'm yeah, exactly right. shocking it. Yeah. I'm shocking yeah. at talking to people generally. Mm. Uh, that's why I started a podcast. <laughs> I thought it'd be such a good idea to do something I'm actually pretty bad at. <laughs> uh, you do, okay. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> um, but, you know, that that lesson from the body of Christ that, you know, a, a foot can't say to the hand, oh, I'm not, I'm not a hand, so I'm not important. Mm. I'm not part of the body. Yeah. And you know, because I because I'm not an eye, I'm butchering this. No, <laughs> you can right. tell I don't have it memorized, but oh, look, you, you know, just because I'm not an eye, I'm not before. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really valuable lesson for anyone to to learn, particularly for younger people who, like, I remember when I was, you know, I, I saw the radicals, I saw these uni workers mm. doing astonishing work. Um, and I thought, well, that's what mission is, or that's what service looks like. And I was really, you know, really quite upset by that because I'm like, oh, this is just going to be so difficult for me to do. Yeah, I'm um, not cut out for this. I'm not cut out for it. But 
it, then, you know, with time, you learn actually, no, what, what Paul's saying is actually there's a lot of substance in that. And um, the organisations like UNO can often get into trouble because they don't have a lot of the background support. They're full of the frontline worker, but who's behind them when, when things start to, you know, unravel is does in every organisation from time to time. I could not count the number of people that I have watched launch themselves into really amazing missional work only to to burn out or disappear and you you know you sit around a kitchen table with a couple of mates who you know you know people who know people and you're just like oh whatever happened to so and so yeah no idea they've they've just gone off the grid Mm. like that amazing plan that they had has just gone and they can because they didn't have the support there wasn't the structure and the and the the networks of support around them that they needed and part of it is you know it's a it's a two-way lesson because we we as individuals need to recognize our our gifts and our the place that we have in the body and also the the church the capital c church that is that is all of us needs to be able to recognize the value of the different parts of the body and not just hold up you know the the radical frontliners as the 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 best and the only uh missional people yeah you know. and, and it's funny, and I think we've got to listen to each other because, hundred yeah, percent. Um, you know, the amount of times, like when I when I go over with Sharing Hope to Thailand, or um, you know, do these other things with uni degree, I went to East Timor for a time, um, and you come back and you think, oh, I just got to change my life. I'm gonna sell all my possessions and I'll start a cafe, and all the funds will go yep. this and there, yep. and you know, have all yep. these great wild plans. Yeah, I, I had one of these great wild plans one time, and I came back and I felt that you know God was in it. And I was really, really revved up, ready to do it. And I went and spoke to my mum and my dad, both of whom are very committed Christians. I went and spoke to my pastor. I went and spoke to several pastors about it. And they all said, oh, Dave, I don't think that's a very good idea. <laughs> and so it was like, oh, okay, maybe maybe I was getting a bit gung-ho with this. Um, and we have we have this, this thing in my church where um, we, we believe if you've got the vision, you've got the mission. So if you, if you have this great idea, great. God's given you that. That's yours now. But the other side of it is also share it with 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 everyone else in the church. And if they agree and if there's some consensus, then you know you got something going. But if there isn't and everyone shakes their head, maybe don't pursue it. Yeah. Without yeah. a lot more. Maybe it's not right now. Maybe it's yeah. you know you need some more people around you. Maybe you know yeah. all sorts of things. Write it down. Maybe it is just your ego deciding. I'd really love to make a cafe. I'd exactly really love right, to launch yeah. a cafe. I I I see myself as a cafe owner. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Dave's Cafe. Yeah, brought yeah. to you by David Holm, a very very cool yeah. guy. Yeah, that you know might have. Regardless of how much good you could do with that. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> well, look. Good segue there, Dave. Very professional podcasting. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Tell us a bit about sharing hope. Oh, well, <laughs> so you touched on you touched on. While there. we're here, yeah. yeah. While we're here, while you while you brought it up so organically. Sure. So sharing hope is an NGO started about ten years ago that works with a group of people called the Karen. The Karen are from um, the regions in Thailand and also in Burma or Myanmar. In Myanmar, they have their own state called Karen State, which makes it very easy to locate. Uh, but Karen people, as an ethnic group, have traditionally resided on both sides of, of the of the dividing river. So they they there are many Karen in Thailand, and there are many Karen in Karen State. And so we work along the Thailand border. The um, 
a lot of Karen, basically you will have um, you will have heard a few years back about the Rohingya and, and how uh, they were obviously being attacked by the Burmese army and the Rohingya were suffering enormously and many of them had to flee to Bangladesh and are still residing today in, in, um, in I forget the, the precise um, location, uh, but they're, they're still suffering today. Well, the, the Rohingya are one ethnic group within Burma. Um, the Karen are another, and there are the, the Shan and the Mon, and there are many other groups. And basically, the Burmese army that operate independently of the Burmese government, uh, so the Burmese government can't really tell them what to do, but they do their own thing, as we're, we're realising in the last few months when they've launched a coup and they've taken they've taken over the governments again from, from the civilian government. Um, and Aung San Suu Kyi has been, um, been imprisoned yet again. And so we can see that the, the, the Burmese army do what they want to do. And that's actually constitutionally recognised within their constitution. They can do what they want. And uh, in order for, for that constitution to be changed, you need 75% of parliament to approve. Problem is the Burmese army are guaranteed in the constitution to have 25% of the parliament. Um, cool. And so the constitution cool. can't Cool, so you need everyone who's not the army and, to vote against the army. And that's yeah. just never going to happen. Even though Suchi won, I think it was a huge percentage, um, enormous percentage, um, you'll never get that 75.1%. Um, and so, and so the army have a monopoly on power, and but they've launched a coup again and they've taken over again. Basically, what the army does is they'll attack one place for a while, they'll beat up that group, and then they'll move to another group, and they'll sign a bit of a ceasefire. Uh, in 2015, they signed a nationwide ceasefire agreement with many of the of the ethnic groups, including the Karen, um, and they frequently violated it, but not to a huge degree. Well, in the last few months, they've violated it uh, again. And um, it's, it's, since the coup, it's no longer worth the paper it's written on. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So this has been going on for 70 years. With the, basically, ever since uh, uh, Burma or modern-day Myanmar was formed after the British withdrew, like the British are very good at doing, um, colonial empires, they say, right, you're all broadly one group. You can govern yourselves. And, of course, it doesn't work. And yeah. Um, yeah. Burma is just another another place where that doesn't work and there's a lot of violence as a result. As, um the Burmese army tries to subjugate these other groups and there's other group who are just simply trying to defend their right to exist as a culture, the right to speak their own language, the right to be able to teach their students what they wish. Um, you know, the, the Burmese are saying, no, we're all one. And these groups are saying, well, you know, we can actually coexist, you know, yes. um, but we don't want to give up who we are. There needs to still be a recognition of difference. Exactly yeah. right, and uh, so there's been a for 70 years. There's been um, enormous civil unrest with the Karen and with other ethnic groups that have been attacked by the by the Burmese army. So many Karen people have fled to the Thai Burma border and refugee camps in Thailand, and many of them have been um, settled in places in um, United States, Scandinavia, um, England, but also um, a large contingent have come to Australia. And uh, Karen people have, uh, by and large, actually been quite a successful group in, in resettling and engaging with Australian society. Um, and a large group have settled in Croydon Hills and started attending Croydon Hills Baptist Church. And the community there befriended them and members of the Karen community took some Croydon Hills people to the region. Uh, where, and they came back and they all collectively decided, no, we can do something here. And so Sharing Hope was named, the Hope Project then was formed. 
uh, with the idea of providing aid and relief support for the displaced communities that were within Karen State and also um, for the Karen in the refugee camps and also Karen in Thailand. So basically anywhere along the, the Thai-Burma border. We, all our projects at, since day one, 10 years ago, have been initiated by local Karen people who come to our border team, our border team of Karen people. So these are people that can go to Karen State. They're, they're in Karen State. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're, not, citizens. they're citizens, but they also yeah. have citizenship in Thailand. So they can go in and they can come out. Whereas we, you know, it's very tricky for us to be able to do that. Um, and even even if we can get a visa, there's some places that we might not be allowed to go. So the, these these Korean people who are very well respected, a lot of them are actually also work with the Red Cross and with other NGOs and international organisations. So they are they know what they're doing as well. These guys are respected Korean people, and so these village communities go to them and say, "Hi, we would love to be able to." build a new school where we've where we've resettled after being displaced. We're here now, we'd love to start again and we'd want to build school. So then our border team say, okay, great, no worries, we think this could work, this ticks our boxes. Um, so then they'll send the forms to us here in Australia and the Australian team do what we can to fund these projects. So in Australia, all we're doing is advocating and raising funds for the Karen people themselves who want to initiate these programs and projects in their own villages and communities. So we never go and you'll, you'll never see us going and building a school. Um, that's not our, that's not the way we do things. We think that's a quite a poor way of doing development, but we, um, we, we partner with the local communities and to, to undergo the projects that they want to do. So a lot of these projects are, uh, it began very differently to what it is now. At the beginning, it was it was a lot of reconstruction projects, so rebuilding medical clinics, rebuilding schools, as well as um, supporting students with basic food. There is there is nothing there. This is one of the most impoverished regions in the world. Um, so there's no local infrastructure and very little governance that can really do anything. Um, so these people are largely out for themselves. And so a lot of the time we're, we're paying teachers. So these days, most of what we do is actually teachers' wages which is a really interesting thing. I wouldn't have actually expected teachers' wages to be the dominant thing that we would continue to get funding requests for. But the Karen really value education and they really want to see that their kids um, you know, break free from that cycle of, of, um, of poverty that a lack of education you know, condemns them to. And so they, we, um, most of what we do these days is actually um, supporting teachers' wages in various schools because then the teachers can stay, they don't have to leave, they don't have to farm, they don't have to look for alternative work elsewhere. They can stay. They can get better at teaching themselves because um, it's, it's like this. It's a very low starting point. Like a lot of these teachers are just ex-students of these local schools. So the, the quality of education isn't superb, but it's better than what it was. But they know more than their students. Exactly right. Yeah. And so yeah. and, and that consistency there. And one of the most amazing things I love when we get our project reports is if we can match up the teacher's signatures with the application form teacher signatures and they're the same, that is a victory. Because that means that those teachers were able to stay and they, yeah. they, they didn't have to leave to go and, and make sure their family was fed in other means. They had yeah. what they needed. So how did you come to be a part of the of that team? Yeah, so one of the uh, staff members at Croydon Hills, uh, left Croydon Hills, but maintained good relationships with them and with the Corinne that were there. And, and she ended up um, becoming a pastor at my church. And so um, she maintained that connection with, with the Hope Project or with Sharing Hope. And um, I didn't really know her very well um, when she first arrived, obviously, but she learned that I was studying international development at uni because it was something I was kind of thinking about. 
And uh, she said, right, Dave, I've got a plan for your life. And, uh, and so she, <laughs> she took me on one of the trips to the region where I, I met a lot of the people that they were working with. And um, I just decided, yeah, actually, this is, this is a good organization doing good work. And so I kind of kept in contact. And when I finished my degree, I uh, applied for a role and just said, look, I think you should hire me. And, um, and yeah, they did. And I started one day a week and, you know, because it's, it's whatever funding they could source for wages because everything has to go to projects. It's really tricky working in the NGO at, at, at a small level because to expand, you always need to invest. Um, but then to invest, it means that precious dollars aren't going to these communities. It's a really tricky thing. Um, but luckily, with, um, with God's grace, we were able to grow and to grow. And um, now I work three days a week and we've been able to put another staff member on for two days a week. And so... And yeah, so we're, we average, um, we, we do, um, on average, we'd probably be around 15 to 20 projects a year, depending on how you class a project. Um, and a lot of those projects are ongoing ones, but we're on the cusp of it becoming development projects. So not just funding teachers' wages ourselves or funding with the students, but, you know, um, we, we began talking with our team about micro-enterprise, microfinance, um, you know, there's these poverty eliminating projects where people can start to grow their own food again. Um, and the Korean have the knowledge that they know what they're doing, but they just need that initial investment or they just need, you know, circumstances to change a little bit more for them to be able to say, yeah, we're ready now. And that's what gets me really excited um, because they, they know what they want. They're just on the verge and unfortunately COVID stalled things. And now with the with the increase in violence again, it's looking like it may go the other way, which is really sad. But, but still, we know that they know what they want. And um, so, if things cool down again, then we're seeing that we might be able to really start to bring about um, meaningful change in these village communities. Yeah, yeah. So, what kind of projects are you talking about there? What What are the things that have got you really excited? You know, pending all of the the craziness being, hopefully, going smooth, but. Yeah, I think a lot of it, development is a very, very broad phrase. Um, and, and it's for those people that don't know much about the NGO sector, there's really two kinds of NGOs. There's aid and relief, which is, you know, there's a problem, let's put a bandit on it. So if it's, you know, a lot of people, like, and that's what displaced communities need. You know, you're fleeing your home, you've got nothing, you need aid because you need yes. food, you need medicine. You Fair need enough. food, you need shelter. Exactly yep. right. But um, development is the next stage. So, okay, you've got your basic needs settled what is going to make you guys be able to be economically viable again? You know, how are you guys going to be able to provide food for, food for your families, some degree of quality of life, you know, um, and, and ultimately to stop relying on aid. And so it's bringing about sustainability um, rather than just continuous handouts, which are disempowering and, and bad in many ways. Very important, necessary in the short term, but not long term. Necessary, but yeah. And so uh, this can be anything from uh, community farms. Uh, one of the things that I'm very interested in pursuing, and we had some conversations with some of our project partners who run some schools, is, you know, about, about the idea of curriculum farms. So it could be, you know, year eight or year nine. Part of their, that year level's curriculum is to maintain and grow, you know, community farming, whether that be crops or whether that be animals, which can provide, you know, extra income for the school or, you know, better nutritional value for these kids. But let's be honest, these kids might eat one meal or two meals a day and um, sell them maybe once or twice or three times a year, they'll have meat as part of that meal. So these, these kids are, you know, in, in a serious way. So anything that can supplement, you know, rice and veggies 
with a bit more meat is, is good or eggs from, from, you know, animals, chickens or ducks, actually ducks out of chickens. But, um, so, yeah, or even getting a fish farm going, very tricky to do. But once they get that right, then that's a very, very lucrative uh, way of, of selling things to get extra money in or even just feeding their students and teachers as well. So these are the kinds of next level projects that, um, so there's that kind of thing. And there's also funding um, loans and a lot, of, a lot of loan sharks in the region that will take advantage of people. Um, but if, you know, Karen people like people everywhere are very entrepreneurial. So if they feel like they're ready, they, they, they do want to start a business. Problem is a loan shark will rip them off and eventually they'll lose everything and, and bad things can happen to these guys. Um, that these, these, these loan sharks are not nice people. But if we can provide an alternative that, that you know, is culturally appropriate and actually works with these communities, you can do some incredibly amazing things with microfinance loans if it's done right. And so one of the reasons it's stalled is, is um, I really want to go over there and sit down with these community leaders um, in Thailand and with our border team who, who know what they're talking about and say, okay, well, this is, let, let's hear what you want to do. Is it, what, what is going to work best? Is it going to be curriculum farming? Is it going to be village-based farming where the village collectively takes responsibility? Is it microloan? Let me know. And then I can go back to my team and say, this is what they're thinking. Um, because once again, everything has to be initiated by them. We can't go to them and say, well, this is what we want you to do because it might completely fail. Um, you know, we, we've seen places over there where they've built houses, like, you know, other NGOs have built houses, spent a lot of money, and they're abandoned because that's, like, why would you build a house like that in that region? Or, or you know, they didn't, they didn't take into account religious needs or they didn't take into account um, the fact that that plane is, is visible and open. So, you know, if the Burmese army ever came through again, you know, it's a it's a prime target, yeah. And so, and so these people that just want to live in peace actually have to think about these things. And so it requires dialogue and requires conversation. Because um, the minute we start thinking we know best, that's when we start actually doing harm, uh, because we're disempowering. And oftentimes we'll get it wrong. Because we're in Melbourne, Australia, one of the wealthiest places in the world. How are we to understand what other people overseas actually need? And you wind up just re-perpetuating the colonialism exactly that they right. have experienced it's just yeah. like oh it's, it just becomes another outpost of um of melbourne exactly right exactly right and, yeah. and even which the, makes no sense in burma and if you want to get if you want to get really technical you know we talk about what is what is you know faith-based development as well you know uh, you know we can start asking questions about well do we want to perpetuate a, a neoliberal economic platform um that, mm. that these mm. you know uh, you, know, you can keep talking on and on about this absolutely. crazy. Absolutely, absolutely. You got to end up saying yes to something. But yeah, everything we do right. has pros and cons, and um, it's but it's about the current people learning those pros and cons, and then coming to us with a proposal. And so, for a lot of these people, they are experiencing a degree of displacement or risk of displacement. Um, and I know you also work closely with the the Karen communities here in Australia who have had to flee their home home countries. How does it change what you do and how you approach these things when you're working with people who are displaced or at risk of displacement? Yeah, it's a really really good question. Actually, the one of the things that one of the traps I think we can fall into, and I certainly did, was you know, in my heart, like after after my experience with UNO, I went to uni and I thought I might want to do refugee law. 
um, and because uh, that was a big big issue um, back then and I was pretty pretty keen on that and so I went went to the uni and I said uh, I saw the law desk and I signed up and as I was leaving I saw this international development stand and I thought well that's odd what's that and eventually I just signed up there um, instead one of those fork in the road moments um, I have a lot more money if I went to law, uh, but oh well, I made that call. <laughs> <laughs> probably not in refugee law. Just no, that's, that's there, probably but... <laughs> true. Yes, that's right. uh, good. Good point. Good point. Thank you. I needed that. <laughs> that's uh, the one of the one of the mistakes that, that um, I fell into in those early years was wanting to be an advocate, and once again thinking that I knew best, and so I would you know join groups that would say advocate for you know. I can't even remember now, which is telling you something as well. But, you know, you, you just, you know, you're a social justice warrior and, you know, you, you want to make the world better because, of course, if everyone just did that, it would be perfect. Um, and so, you you know, you go to rallies for different things, which is very important and good to do if you believe in the cause. But I was probably not educated enough to really understand what I was advocating for. It, it's It's very tricky because I think a lot of us, mean the best but we're also quite scared for, for example you know we can we can scream and rile at, at, and disgust that um local councils might put um you know on those bus stops or you know on in street um you know just on the streets there might be chairs and benches where homeless people would go to sleep and and so in a way of stopping that um, was that, you know, councils would put those bumps on there so it would be too uncomfortable to sleep. And, you know, we can rile at the, just the horrible injustice of that. Um, it doesn't actually fix the problem. It just moves it to another council. Um, and don't get me started. Actually, I'm getting angry now. But um, And so we can, we can be advocates in that regard. But what I, what I began to realise is I don't actually know any homeless people. And often we can fall into that trap. One thing I think I've said to you previously, Mitch, is that I don't believe in global mission. There's only local mission. Mm. And it just happens to be that this local mission might be a bit further away. It doesn't. Hmm. But if we have, to, we have to rid ourselves of mission being somewhere else. So I, I really value the fact that I know a lot of Karen people here because um, when I want to ask something or when I want to know something, I'll go and chat to one of my Korean friends and I'll learn. Mm. Um, yet I think one of the problems that we have, especially with younger people, is that many people might start an organisation in their early 20s or something or start working for one of the big NGOs because they want to make a difference and that's great, but they'll, they'll, they'll perceive the problem to be elsewhere say they're working with, you know, um, you know, people in Somalia or somewhere, like somewhere. The question that you could often pose to them that leaves them feeling very uncomfortable is, okay, well, well how are you engaging with that community here in Melbourne? Because odds are they will be in Melbourne. They will be refugees, just like the Karen are. How are you engaging with the Karen in your local context? Have you befriended them? Do you know them? And it's very often the answer is a very, oh, well, no, and and that that's really illuminating because we want to do good, we want to do the right thing by our faith, by who we are as people, but 
often it's very, very hard to actually take that extra step and go, I also want to engage. Yet it's only through engaging do we actually really begin to know the people that we purport to support. And I learned that with UNO. I learned that I couldn't simply advocate for something or want something because the need is right in front of me. And if I don't engage with them, who will? Um, and so I saw my mum doing that. But So for me, with the Karen, it's very good because I'm surrounded by Karen people. I, I actually, we got these um, forms that I wanted translated into Karen. And so we got them translated. And the problem with translating forms from one language to another is, with, especially with the Karen script, is that most, most word processors don't actually recognize current scripts so it's got to kind of be inserted in right. a very specific way otherwise it just becomes a jumble of, of different symbols um yeah right and so of course i get the forms back and i think great this looks like Karen. you know i it certainly looks like the script but i don't know um and so i'll just pop out of my office and i'll walk down to you know because i work at Croton hills and so i'll just pop out of the office and the, one, one a couple of weeks ago i went to one of this uh, Korean people that were just walking past and I said, oh, excuse me, can you just, can you just make sure this makes sense, please? Um, and now she didn't actually um, uh, understand or was able to respond in English, um, but she could definitely read it. And so she then uh, uh, points me over to another Korean person and takes the sheet and walks over. The side, and that person um, couldn't read Korean, but could hear Korean and translate into English. So we had this yep. Yep. very funny three-way <laughs> conversation of, of trying to make sure that this the form actually said what it said. Um, and and, and I'll, I walk away and they're just bursting out laughing and I'm like, yeah, that's, that's yep. pretty funny. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> but also you learn so much about what they need. Take the housing example, right? Now, you and I have a very, very firm idea of what a house is. You know, we're, we're, we're currently looking at each other over Zoom and you're in a room and I'm in a room. And so... That room is the study, and this room is Julie's old office. So rooms have a very clear statement. Whenever I visit a Karen family, um, and whenever I get to know Karen family, which isn't so much these days because COVID's kind of ruined everything, but I did a holiday program for a while where I was helping Karen uh, students, and I would go to their house, and all of their sleeping mats would be all in the same room because they've always slept in the same room together. And so they'll have whole rooms in the house that are completely abandoned and they'll all be sleeping in one or two rooms. And so if we take that example of what housing is for like, you know, if, if you know, I think back to those, those houses I've seen on the region where they have two or three rooms that are useless, that are completely useless and there's uses for other reasons as well, but that was one of the reasons. So it's just simple things like that, as well as getting to know amazing, wonderful people you also who who seriously put our selflessness and our hospitality to shame. You also gain such a real understanding about what actually they value, and that can really inform the work that you do. So, for listeners that are out there that are just starting to get into this whole thing, then maybe they they want to work with refugees or they want to work with a particular group of people. Um, if, you know, for many of the of the of people that are disadvantaged in, in our society here in Australia or overseas, definitely get involved, but also take that extra step and see how you can engage with those people at a very personal level because it's only then that you really begin to understand what it is that you're actually um, actually doing and actually the impact that you can actually yeah. have. Yeah, amen. 
And that brings us full circle to what is mission. It's relationship. Exactly right. Oh, that's very good. Oh, what a, what a great way. Look at that. There you go. That'll preach. <laughs> and w- one thing I will say, um, I'm just looking at the time. One of the other, one of the other questions you have written down is about uh, how God has, how I've seen God move um, in, in the region with Emma Work with Sharing Hope. Uh, we are an NGO, so we're not a faith-based organisation. Uh, but what's uh, but everyone involved is Christian. We work at Croydon Hills, you know. There's there's definitely a Christian ethos. Uh, but a lot of what Croydon Hills Baptist Church does is they also have a ministry called Churches of Hope. Um, and so the church can support other initiatives that the Quran might bring forward. And um, so we administer that because it's often sort of the same people, but the money comes from the church, not not from our donation pool. So there's an important legal distinction there, but a lot of the time um, um, that that crossover has happened in, in a small way. Um, and I remember when I was first starting out, once again, when I was young and immature and didn't know anything, and of course now I know everything, um, I once saw um, a displaced community, and this had been in a region that we had been allowed to go into. And so I went in, and this had been where there had been quite severe fighting and in previous years. And so it was abandoned. And I saw that they were constructing a church. And so obviously Church of Hope had, had funded the construction of this church. And I remember standing there looking at it, and I thought, well, you know, I'm a Christian. I obviously get it. Great, wonderful. But seriously? You know, is this what we need right now? That's where you start. Yeah, like this is not where we're meant to start. We, we don't go around evangelizing. Like, you know, we could talk about all that. You know, there's wonderful evangelism, but there's also very toxic evangelism. Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, so just building building churches here, there, wherever is, is it doesn't, doesn't ring true to me. But I was I was looking at this construction and I was thinking, this I, I just don't like this. You could be starting with a clinic or a school um, or a village. There's nothing around us. And I went over to uh, one of our Karen leaders, who's a very deeply intelligent man, a, a hugely inspirational man, who had to flee his own, and he's a refugee settling here, and he's very much the founder of Sharing Hope and a hugely inspiring man. And I went over to him and I spoke with him and said, look, is this, what's, what's the deal here? And he said, David, this is hope. And the, the, the name Sharing Hope, or we were the Hope Project, but that was that was a Karen. The Karen came up with that name, and, and that's because they a lot of the Karen are Christian. Actually, um, um, there are different religious groups within Karen state, but, but Christianity is quite quite prevalent, um, largely because actually um, Christianity kind of aligns, and, and the message of Jesus actually aligns very 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 closely with some of their cultural and social stories, and their own kind of religious stories. So, so when the evangelists did come, the the Karen were actually like, oh yeah, we know who Jesus is. He's, we, yeah. we'd call him this. So there was a lot of there's yeah. a lot of very interesting spiritual and religious connections. Um, so they were quite receptive to, to that message, and fortunately, largely that was done quite well, um, and there wasn't wasn't too much damage done as there so often was in the past. But uh, for for these guys, you know, um, this person was able to tell me that you know we we will we will build clinics, we will build schools, but we'll build them when the people come. People will come because this is a building that doesn't need to be here. But this is a building built on trauma, a building built on a land that was 
devastated by war and conflict, this is a sign of hope in the future. And that's so often what Christianity is. When Christianity is not toxic, when Christianity is done right, it is hope for the future. And and so I just, you know, nodded my head and gritted my teeth. And then, um, you know, we see a community that is now there. And there are two schools and I think there are two clinics. And, and you know, every time that we're allowed to go, we see a community that is growing and thriving around this church. And uh, so, yeah, so that, that's where faith um, can have a very important part in in working with traumatised community um, because that sign of hope is often what people gravitate towards. And our faith, if it's nothing if it's not hope. And so... Yeah, that, that was that was probably the most profound message I ever learned in my work with that. That's the cross and the resurrection, isn't it? It is, exactly right. That's yep. Doesn't get much more traumatic than that, and it doesn't get much more hopeful than exactly that. Exactly right. Exactly right. And and seriously, the Korean understand that message. Mm. They, they mm. understand the old testament mm. very well. Sounds you know, like they it. understand the New Testament. If you if you want to know an incredible perspective on the whole story of scripture, just sit down and have a chat with the Korean. Tell you what. <laughs> well, Dave, thanks so much. It's been awesome chatting with you. I'm mindful of time. Yeah. Um, you know, we could keep chatting for hours. We have chatted for hours, and I'm sure we'll chat for many more. We hours can. I'm come, doing but... very boring work, so we can. We can... <laughs> <laughs> this, this is my this is my church day today, and I'm just doing admin. So I'm more than happy to keep chatting for another couple of hours. You're doing your spiritual gift. Thank you very oh, much. Of course, yes. Sure. You, are, you are performing your your role in the blood. Thank you for holding me. Uh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> but if people wanted to connect more with you and sharing hope and find out more about what you do and ways that they could potentially support you, where would they go? Or how would they find you? Yeah, the first step. Uh, great question. The first step is um, just visit our website. Um, it's getting better every day. <laughs> uh, it's sharinghope.org.au. Uh, that'll take you to a great list of overview of our projects and what we do. And also, if you want to connect with us on Facebook, it's also Sharing Hope Org AU. So there's lots of Sharing Hopes on Facebook. So Sharing Hope Org AU, I believe, or unless it's Sharing Hope AU, it's you, you, it'll match very closely with the website, what it looks like. Um, but they're the easiest ways to get in touch. Um, yeah, absolutely. Great. Awesome. Thanks so much for chatting with us, Dave. It's been fantastic. No, thank you, Mitch. Thank you for giving me the place to to share with the thousands and thousands of of, uh, viewers. Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks heaps to David for joining us on Mission Unplugged. If you want to connect more with David and Sharing Hope and find out a bit more about the work that they do, you can find their website at sharinghope.org.au or find them on Facebook and Instagram at sharinghopeau. Thanks for listening to Mission Unplugged, a podcast by Embody. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please rate and leave a review so more people can find us and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And join the conversation right now in our Discord channel at embody.org.au forward slash Discord. Embody is a national community of young people passionate about mission locally, nationally and globally. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at EmbodyAU and visit our website at embody.org.au. All the links are in the show notes. Embody is part of the Global Mission Partners family. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands and waters of Australia and pay respect to elders past and present. We recognise their continuing connection to land, water and culture. Music in the show is by Josh Woodward. 
We'll catch you next time, and thanks for listening to Mission Unplugged.